Beloved, I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, chapter 1, we are still in the very early stages, the infancy of what Mark entitles the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so this morning, um, I want us to read together the verses that we have read the last three weeks, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1, and let's stand together and let's read these words together. This is the word of the living God to us. And Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is a simple one. I pray that we would behold Christ as you intend us to do through these words that you have inspired Mark to write. I pray, Lord God, that we would be arrested with the glory and the majesty and the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, we would be freshly affected by by his wonder, by the wonder of who he is. I pray, Lord God, you would draw our hearts out in true adoration and worship of the one who alone can save our souls and has done it. I pray that we would be moved today to worship and to greater faith and to greater obedience and to a greater thanksgiving than we ever have been. Lord, we need you to speak to us. We need you to unveil our eyes that are so easily, that so easily become drowsy. Lord God, we need you to unstop our ears. We need you, Father God, to to soften our heart and plow up the hard places. We need you, Lord God, to take the seed of your word and plant it deep in us. Plant it deep in us that it might bear fruit in our lives, Lord God, as you determine and as you desire. I'm thankful for this people that are here today. I pray you'd bless them, Lord God. I pray that you would descend upon them in power. I pray that you would pour your spirit out in even greater measure and that you would make their minds and their hearts attentive and that, Father God, you would teach them what their souls need to hear. And I pray, Lord God, that you would indeed pour your spirit out on me and grant me the unction to speak your words with power, to declare your truth with, you know, unashamedly, and directly, and that it might do the work of turning and of changing and of softening even the hardest heart in this room. 
to save those who are lost. Equip and edify those who are saved. But in every situation, make us to be amazed at the Lord Jesus, I pray. In his holy name, amen. As I mentioned, beloved, we are still in just the very early stages, right, of this gospel. And as I read ahead and as I prepare, you know, I'm getting ready to to preach, you know, down the road. I'm excited for what's coming. But I'm also excited about what we see in this text this morning, right? I want you to think about where we were last week, right? Last week, we were looking at John, right? The, The John that just came on the scene, right? The great commotion that took place in Jerusalem, in Judea. When all of a sudden, the 400 years of prophetic silence came to an end in the appearance of John, whom we commonly call John the Baptist, right? This guy clothed in camel's hair, wearing a a leather belt, like the spinning image of Elijah. Not that they had, you know, photographs back then, but they told stories, right? Then here was this guy that was just like Elijah. This man that had come in the spirit, in the power of Elijah, and was out in the wilderness proclaiming, you know, uh, and, 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 and performing uh, a ministry that involved a, a baptism of repentance and the confession of sins that, that all of Israel should come out and be baptized as a symbol of putting to death their old lives and their old ways, turning from rampant and willful sin, right, and from indifference and apathy, and that they needed to prepare themselves because God was coming. They needed to prepare themselves because the Messiah was about to arrive, right? John was a phenomenon, wasn't he? And yet here's the deal. Here's the deal. When the people poured out to the wilderness to see him and to hear the message that he proclaimed, it wasn't that John's ministry, you know, was was the end of it all. It's that John's ministry was just preparatory, wasn't it? It pointed to somebody else. It pointed to somebody greater. It pointed to somebody far more awesome. In fact, he made the statement that after me, Mark 1, verses 7 through 8, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what John was saying. Don't get too carried away with me. Don't be too amazed at me. The message that I am bringing to you, it doesn't terminate in me. The message that I am bringing to you, the message that I'm preaching, it points to somebody who is far, far greater than I am. It points to somebody who's infinitely greater than me, infinitely mightier than I am, who is glorious to such a degree, now get this, that I am not even worthy to perform the lowest act of the lowest slave before him. That is, take off and unlatch the the straps of his sandals. He is so far greater than I am. I baptize you with water, but he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's coming to baptize you with the one who regenerates dead hearts and souls and who gives light to darkened minds so that you can understand and believe the word of God. He's coming to baptize you with the one who overcomes the hardness of your heart and gives to you faith to believe. He's coming to baptize you with the one who sanctifies his people and who seals them unto God forever as his people. This mightier one, he is far greater than you can even imagine. So the question, obviously, that would be in the people's minds that are out there at the you know, River Jordan being baptized is, well, who is he? Where is he? How will we recognize him? Who is this man of whom you are speaking? And that's exactly what this text answers this morning. That's exactly what this text answers this morning. In this end of the introduction to this gospel of Mark, here's what Mark does. He shines a light on Jesus so that we cannot mistake his glory, so that we can't miss his majesty. He shines a light upon him in three short vignettes. He uses this incredible economy of words. To show us the glory of Jesus Christ. To get our attention. 
so that we know exactly who it is of whom he's speaking. He grabs our attention with three simple scenes that we come to realize aren't simple at all. Look at this with me. Mark begins, first of all, by describing to us how this mighty one is revealed in the baptism. Look at it. Verses 9 through 11 with me again. He says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son with you. I am well pleased. I want us to make sure we understand this and get this picture, okay? Here's John beginning his his baptizing ministry. He's beginning his ministry where he's calling people to repentance, right? He's preaching that message of repentance. And somehow, somehow or another, Christ is aware of this ministry. Jesus is aware of this ministry. And so he deliberately and he purposefully sets out from Nazareth in Galilee to present himself to John at the Jordan River. Now, we're not told that anybody else came out from Galilee. We're not told that anybody else came out from the city of Nazareth except for the Lord Jesus. He comes out according to a divine call, according to divine wisdom. And he comes and he presents himself to John out in the wilderness near Judea and and Jerusalem by the Jordan River so that he can be baptized. Try to imagine this picture for a second, okay? Just try to imagine this picture with me for a moment, right? Have you ever tried to think about what it looked like when, when John was baptizing, right? I mean, there he is. He's in the middle of the river, right? And I would imagine that on the banks of the river, there are these lines of people, right, that are all waiting to come and confess their sins and be baptized by John, right? And so you've got this entire line of, of, of you know, every kind of sinner imaginable, right? Every kind of sinner imaginable, liars, thieves, drunkards, violent men, idolaters, blasphemers, the sexually immoral, you know, the arrogant and the proud, you know, every combination thereof and more, right? You've got this line, this seemingly unbroken line going out into the horizon of sinners awaiting baptism and right there in the middle of them, right there in that line stands the sinless spotless son of God in the middle of all this mass of human sin there is the sinless spotless son of God holy without sin but coming to be baptized by John choosing now in the words of Isaiah to be numbered among the transgressors what's going on here What exactly is going on here, right? What are we to make of this? Why is he being baptized? Clearly, it's not for personal repentance from sin, right? It's not, you know, to confess his sin because he has none. So what is the point of him being baptized? What is the point of the Son of God presenting himself at a baptism for repentance? Well, there's a couple of things at play here. There's a couple of things at play here, and praise God they are. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, this Messiah, who saves this one, who gives himself as a ransom, he comes to be baptized in order that he might be identified with his people. He comes to identify himself with those he's come to rescue. He comes to identify himself as the one who can deliver sinners from the penalty of their sins. He comes to present himself as one of us. To present himself as one of us. I want you to think about this, beloved. we got to keep in mind what baptism represents. It's important that we understand that. Baptism, beloved, baptism is a picture of judgment. You realize that, right? Baptism is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of the death of the old man and then rising to walk in the newness of life. It's a picture of the death of your old ways, the death of your old life, the death of who you used to be. It is a picture of the judgment of God on your sin, which deserves death. At least the first part of it, when you're plunged in the water. It's a picture of judgment. A picture of divine judgment upon 
the old man. And when Jesus came to be baptized, clearly he had no sins to confess. He had no need for repentance. He'd always obeyed the Lord God. He has always loved the Lord God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He had always loved his neighbor as himself. He had never known the grief of, 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 of sin. He had never known the, the, the grief of a deviled conscience of guilt and of shame because he'd never known sin at all. And yet when Jesus when he submits himself to baptism with the transgressors, here's what he's doing. He is acknowledging God's just judgment on sin. He's acknowledging God's just judgment on sin. And when he who needs no baptism puts himself forward to be baptized, to identify himself with those whom he would save, submitting to the will of the Father, he is publicly declaring his mission to endure the judgment of God for our sake and his willingness to do so. Jesus identified himself publicly and he, and he identified himself with us in what is our central, immense, and humanly insolvable problem, which is our sin and the wrath that it deserves. His baptism served as a picture of the death under God's judgment that he knew he must endure for the sins of his people. As Paul wrote to Timothy, for there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that leads us to the second thing. When the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized, beloved, here was he was doing. It's not just that he was identifying, I'm one of you. He was also saying this. He was putting himself forward as our representative. He was putting himself forward as our federal head. He was putting himself forward as the acting agent on behalf of of his people. In other words, when Jesus comes to be baptized, when he puts himself forward, this sinless one, what he is saying is, I will stand in their place. I will suffer on their behalf what they deserve. I will bear what they have earned. I will be their mediator. I will be their substitute. I will endure the judgment of God so that he, so that I might make a new Israel, a spiritual Israel, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Jesus was putting himself forward to say, I stand for them. Not just with them, but for them. So that through me and through what I will do, there might be created a new, righteous, sanctified, spiritual Israel. A people that the Lord Jesus would deliver from eternal damnation by standing in their place and satisfying the law of God, walking in perfect righteousness on their behalf and bearing in himself the judgment for their sins on the cross, thereby actually washing away the sins of his people, which baptism only pictured. He would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He'd die for sin and rise to a new indestructible life so that through him his people could be raised from spiritual death into life. That's what it means in that very, very, very short sentence when Mark says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There's a world of weight of truth in those words. But he puts himself forward in that way, right? Well, who is he to do that? Who is he to do that? And beloved, that question is answered by the extraordinary things that took place when he was baptized, that I revealed him and authenticated him as the Son of God. Look what it says here. It says, when Jesus came up out of the water, Mark says, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, right? So from Mark and the other gospels, it would seem that when Jesus came up out of the water and the heavens were torn open, it would seem that he was the only one who actually saw that take place. 
That that was a vision that Jesus experienced. That was a vision that the Lord Jesus Christ beheld. That he saw the heavens torn open like a curtain, right? And he beheld all of a sudden before his face a vision of Father God and of the holy angels and of the throne room of heaven and of the, you know, the, the, the spirits of just men made perfect, right? He saw that. Only he saw that. Or there would have been a lot more dead people on the banks of the Jordan from cardiac and pulmonary related issues. He saw it. And Mark records it for us, right? What's the, what's the significance of that? Well, this picture that Mark records of heaven opening to Christ, it shows us in brilliant fashion that though the way to God had been closed by our sin, Though we had rendered ourselves wretched and worthless and excluded from the glorious presence of God, that the way to heaven has now been opened for all eternity in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's the one that will open the way for sinners to return to God's presence. And and as soon as Jesus sees this vision, two things take place. Two things take place. The Spirit of God descends upon him, right? And there is a voice from heaven that grabs everybody's attention. First, the Spirit of God descends upon the Lord Jesus. Now, we don't know if everybody saw that, but we do know this. We do know that the Apostle John did. I'm sorry, that John did. The Apostle John tells us that John the Baptist saw the Spirit descending like a dove and landing upon the Lord Jesus, right? So it may be that more than John the Baptist saw that. But he descends upon, the Spirit does, descends upon the Lord Jesus like a dove. Not not as a dove, not a literal dove, Okay? I've actually seen people argue that, like, no, it was a real dove. That's not what this says. It's a simile. It was like a dove. In other words, the idea is he descends upon the Lord, the Holy Spirit does, in a discernible shape, in a discernible form, so that other people can see what's taking place. Okay? That's the idea. It's not that some dove comes fluttering out of heaven. Now, it's not that the Lord Jesus had never had the Holy Spirit before. Like up until this point, he didn't have the Holy Spirit. And then now he has the Holy Spirit. And now all of a sudden he's the Son of God. That's the era of adoptionism. That's not what this is. It's not that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before, that the Holy Spirit didn't dwell within him. Rather, in this moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is being publicly anointed by the Holy Spirit for the ministry that he will accomplish, identifying him as God's true Messiah. In fact, here's the deal. In the Greek, literally what this says is that the Spirit was descending into Jesus, indicating his complete filling and equipping with ministry or for ministry. It's, it's exactly what we read, you know, this morning in between a couple of the songs. It's exactly what's described there in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, where Isaiah says of the Messiah, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ visibly. So that at least John, if not everybody, can see that he is being clearly identified, clearly set apart as the Messiah. And just in case there's any question, at the moment that Jesus comes up out of the water from being baptized, there is a voice that comes from heaven that declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here's the deal. You know, we, Jesus was the only one to see the vision. John may have been the only one to see the Holy Spirit descend, but probably most people did. But with this one, everybody heard this. When you read the other Gospels, you realize everybody heard this. Those that were standing around heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus himself heard the Father say, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What other testimony could be better than that? What other testimony could be better than that? 
You're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. When the Father, when the Father describes Jesus as his beloved son, I want to make sure we understand this because there's two distinct things going on in this statement. When he says, you are my beloved son, the Greek makes clear, okay? The Greek of you are my beloved son makes clear that the father is stating what has always been true from eternity. In other words, when he says here that, that you know, you're my beloved son, what he's saying is that he has loved the son with a full, extraordinary, and an indescribable love before time began. He has always loved his son. He has always loved Christ in a unique and a special way. That word beloved describes a deep, rich, intense, a profound love and affection. God the Father delights in his son. When he looks at him, he is entirely, you know, just satisfied in the glory and the beauty of his son. And he has been from all of eternity. So this idea that God was lonely and, and God, God just needed somebody to love and that's why he made mankind is totally false. God didn't make you because he needed somebody to love. The triune God, members of the triune God loved one another in perfection. But then secondly, when he says, with you I am well pleased, the idea in the Greek here is that with what you are doing right now, I am well pleased. With what you are doing right now, I am well pleased. The idea in the Greek is that God is well pleased in Christ coming into the world as the servant king. Well pleased in his obedience to come and to save sinners. Well pleased in his coming and identifying with his people. Well pleased in him as the king of the kingdom of God. As the one true redeemer. And so God the Father all in one says, I have loved you forever. And I am so well pleased with you now. He authenticates the identity of his son and he approves of his mission all in one. In just this baptism, this act of baptism, Christ is revealed clearly so that nobody can miss it. So that nobody can say, I, I didn't know he was the son of God. I had no idea what he came to do. I, I have no clue who he is. You only have to read verses 9 through 11 to know, right? But I guess there's still a question that we could ask. I guess the question that could come out of this is, okay, he's revealed now as the mighty one. The mighty one that he's been talking about is this Jesus of Nazareth who has just been baptized and, you know, it's... The Spirit of God descended on him, and we heard God declare that he loves him, and he's well pleased with him. But can he succeed? Can he actually do what he promises to do by identifying with us in this baptism? Can he really do those things? Can he succeed? Can he do for sinners what they can't do for themselves? Does he really have that kind of power? Well, that's a legitimate question, isn't it? That's a legitimate question. I mean, think about it. Mark actually thinks about answering this question. Which is why he immediately includes this. He immediately talks about Christ's temptation in the wilderness. Almost shockingly, in fact. Mark says to us in verses 12 and 13, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's interesting, isn't it? There's no celebration. There's no coronation. There's no great feast to celebrate the moment of Christ's baptism, where he's identified as the Son of God. Instead, the very same Spirit who descended on Jesus at his baptism has appointment for him in the wilderness. And it's immediate. It's immediate. In fact, the language is forceful and it is explicit. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. He thrusts him out into the wilderness. That's what that Greek word means. He thrusts him out into the wilderness to confront Satan and to be tempted by him. 
Now I want us to see, this is not like, you know, this isn't presented to us as some kind of unfortunate circumstance, like Jesus got lost along his way. Whoops. And he stumbled into this. Rather, it's presented to us as a divine necessity. And this 40-day temptation, it tests and it proves the identity and the power and the triumphant perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Okay, I want you to think about this. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ come into this world? We could give a ton of answers to that, right? But the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, he says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, to bear the wrath, for our sins, for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The champion of our salvation, okay? The champion of our salvation had to prove himself. He had to prove himself mighty to save. He had to prove himself the son of God. He had to prove himself to be mighty to rescue And the only way that he can be mighty to save, beloved, is if he is tested and he is proven to be sinless. So he's got to immediately go into battle with the enemy of our souls. And there he has to prove victorious. Or otherwise, he's a false savior, right? He's got to prove victorious. Only a sinless savior, only a sinless sacrifice can save sinful men and women, right? Right? A weak and a sinful Savior is no Savior at all, is he? He's not. Such a Savior can't provide the offering of atonement that the holy God demands, nor can a sinful man rise from the dead, thereby conquering the power of sin and hell, eternal death, and the devil himself. He's got to be perfect. He's got to be sinless and tried. He's got to be tested and proven if he's going to stand in our place and pay our sin debt to the uttermost. He's got to be proven. And that required this initial battle in the wilderness. Now, here's the thing. And and it's, you know, again, this is typical of Mark. Mark wants you to read between the lines here. Though, Though a battle of cosmic significance took place in the desert between Christ and Satan, Mark tells us relatively little about it, doesn't he? In comparison with Matthew and Luke. Like when you read Matthew and Luke, right? I mean, they highlight three specific temptations in which Christ was victorious, right? But if you look closely at the Greek here in Mark, what Mark is telling us is this, is that Jesus faced continuing and ongoing temptations from Satan. In other words, Matthew and Luke picked three to highlight. But there were far more than that taking place over this 40-day period, day after day, week after week, Christ endured intense temptation from the enemy of our souls, temptations designed to break him, temptations designed to cause him to sin, temptations designed to render him ineffective as Savior, temptations like every temptation that we face. And after every battle, With Satan, Mark tells us the angels were ministering to him. That's the idea of the Greek here. It's not that the angels showed up at the end. It's that throughout this, the angels were continuously ministering to Jesus. And and, and what all that includes, I don't know. We don't know. There's no way to know, right? But, But it points to something. It points, beloved, to the intensity and the ongoing nature and the the the. The tribal nature of this battle, this is a real fight. And moreover, Mark tells us that this battle took place in the wilderness, right? I think it's interesting. It's not, the wilderness at the River Jordan is not enough. We got to go even further into the wilderness for this. And the mention of the wilderness is important. You remember we talked about this some, I think, last week. 
that the wilderness was the place, remember, where God led the Israelites and where he would continually care for them and where he provided for their every need. But it was also that place where they were tested and where they sinned, wasn't it? It was the place where they failed to honor God as they should, where they failed to worship him with a whole heart. It was desert, it was scrub, it was wilderness. It was, it was not a pleasant place. And here is Jesus thrust into the wilderness. The mention here of wild animals. And don't get the wrong picture. It's not Jesus hanging out with these animals like they're little grown kitties and puppies and doggies. That's not what this is. It's not, oh, here was Jesus out in the wilderness. He was cold, so at night he could snuggle with a lion. It's not what's going on here. The description and the, and the use of this you know, phrase, wild animals, always points to, it always points to the vast and haunting and untamed nature of the wilderness. And so here is Jesus, driven out into the wilderness in a reenactment of what had led to Israel's failure. He's led out into the wilderness to be tested and tried, not that he might fail like Israel did, but so that he might be proven faithful to God and be proven blameless, right? That he could actually accomplish what Israel couldn't. But even more than this, and I want you to see this, the picture here is that Jesus needs to endure the exact same test that Adam faced if he's going to be the second Adam and the head of a redeemed and a rescued race. He's got to face the same thing. He's got to do spiritual conflict with the devil, and he's got to succeed where Adam failed, right? Now, when you think about this, okay, the contrasting parallels to Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden and Jesus' success in the wilderness are remarkable. Adam was in paradise. He had no need for anything. Jesus was in the wilderness. Adam was, you know, had everything good at his disposal. Christ was in the wilderness and he had nothing. In fact, he was fasting. Adam was tempted in one way and failed. Jesus was tempted in every way common to man. In fact, when you think about this, beloved, it ought to blow your mind how great Jesus is. If you think about this, you know, the Father, it almost seems like God the Father is allowing his son to be put at every single disadvantage possible for this fight, removing every possible circumstance as the reason for Jesus' victory and Satan's defeat. He puts him in the most disadvantageous position, but Christ prevails. He, 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 Jesus goes out in the desert. He faces Satan. He does what has never been done before. In the face of temptation, he renders perfect obedience to God's law, and he fulfills all righteousness. Here in the wilderness begins the fulfillment of the promise that God made in the presence of Satan after Adam's fall, that the seed of the woman would crush his head. There's no accident or coincidence here. This is a divinely appointed confrontation in which it would be clearly revealed that Jesus Christ and his mission to redeem sinners is unstoppable. The first demonstration of his obedient resolve and glorious might as our redeemer and our deliverer is to face down Satan, to endure temptation in the face of all insurmountable odds seemingly and win. Interestingly enough though, Mark doesn't tell us that Satan's temptations came to an end, does he? Notice that? He doesn't tell us that, that Satan's temptations of Christ came to an end because they didn't. It's not like after this, Satan just packed up shop and was like, oh, oh well. No. Christ was tempted throughout his ministry. He was tempted throughout his life, right? And even more than that, listen, Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus won the battle in the wilderness, does he? Rather, you know what he expects? He expects that you'll draw the line. He expects that, that, that we'll get it. He expects us to understand that Jesus must have been victorious because of the message that he then goes on to preach. He's got to be victorious or this message that he's preaching is a bunch of, to use one of my least favorite politicians' expressions, malarkey. In a very real sense. Jesus coming and preaching his message, the mighty one's message, is an extension of the victory that he wins in the wilderness. Look at this with me. Verses 14 and 15. 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John's preaching had been the dominant voice. All of a sudden, it silenced. And into that void steps the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins his gospel ministry. He begins his preaching ministry. People have often said that Jesus didn't really preach. He did things so that we might have something of which to preach. That's not true. That's wrong. Jesus was a preacher first. And he did miracles to authenticate his word. With me? So he comes preaching. He comes preaching He comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, right? And we talked about that last week, or two weeks ago. The gospel of God, what is that? It's the gospel from God. It's the gospel that God has devised. It's the gospel that has its origin in God. It's the gospel that fallen man could never invent, that fallen man could never imagine. It's the good news that it comes from the throne of heaven through the voices of, you know, God's preachers, That though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that they can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The good news is, if you're a sinner, you can be saved. The good news is, if you recognize yourself as a rebel, you can be rescued. That if you are at odds with God, you can be at peace with God. Not because of anything that you can do, but because of everything that God has done. Amen? He has sent his son into this world to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you deserve to die, then to rise again on the third day and ascend into heaven and take his place at the right hand of the Father so that if you would repent of your sins and you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, not really. That's always the message, right? But what Mark does here is this. He summarizes the message of Jesus Christ with three phrases. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's such a simple message. It's such a simple message. I want you to see how simple this is. Right? Jesus, what does he mean when he says, the time is fulfilled? Here's what he means. All the, prophetic, all the prophetic pointing to this day, all the prophecies that you've heard, all the promises of a Messiah, all the promises of a Redeemer come to save his people, everything that you've seen in Isaiah, everything that you've heard in Ezekiel, everything you read about in Jeremiah, all of that that you've read since the, since the book of Genesis. Listen, it is all being fulfilled right now. The time is now. The time of God's choosing the time that he spoke of it is here it's here god is invading the world to save for himself a people the entire course of redemptive history has come to its critical hour that's the idea it carries with the idea of you better wake up you better understand the age you're living in you're living in the last days man you are living in the last days So you better hear what's being said. The time's at hand. God's appointed time is at hand. This is the fullness of time. And from this day forward, human history enters its final phase. You hearing me? It enters its final phase. Hey, beloved, we're not looking for anything else but the return of Christ, right? This is the final phase. But even more, I want you to see this. So he talks about time. Then he says... The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying that that God's saving purpose, the inbreaking of his kingdom into the world of fallen sinners, it's at hand right now. And what he wants you to understand is this. This is not a reference to time, okay? When he says it's at hand, it's not a reference to time. It instead is a spatial reference. What I mean by that is this. What Jesus is saying when he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is, the kingdom of God is here in me. In me. In his person. Because he's the king of the kingdom. 
In him, God has invaded humanity to accomplish our redemption from sin and its consequences. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is present because the Lord Jesus Christ is present. He's drawn near. He is here with us. And where he is present, like we said last week, where he is present, the curse of sin and its effects must flee, right? Right? It's got to flee. In his presence, demons are cast out. And their power is subdued. The blind see, the deaf hear, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, spiritual darkness is overcome. The power ultimately of sin and hell and death are destroyed by his sacrificial death and resurrection. And though his kingdom, which is not yet consummated, but what will be consummated when at his second coming, we are right now in the final stage of all things. And so you better respond. You better respond. The kingdom has come with him. The kingdom is here in him. And every time we get together, beloved, and Christ is in our midst, walking up and down his lampstands, and we're one of them, he is in our presence, and he is manifesting his kingdom in this church. And in every faithful church. This is serious business, man. Jesus is saying, look, the time is now. And I'm here, the king of God's kingdom, to manifest and extend the rule of Almighty God in the hearts of men and women until the day that it is fully consummated, right? So how is it that we enter this kingdom? Jesus is very clear, isn't he? Isn't he? This is a very simple statement. This is not complicated, is it? This is not like the false salvation that the Catholics offer where you've got to go through a maze and flow chart in order to hopefully find yourself in heaven. There's no need for magic underpants like the Mormons. It's not just for 144,000 like the J-dubs. It's not open to cheap gracers who excuse their sin because God forgives. And so don't deal with it at all. No, the message is really clear, isn't it? Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we know Christ is the gospel incarnate, right? Repent and believe in Christ. Jesus is saying here in no uncertain terms, in very clear ones, repent and believe in me. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your selfish and your self-directed living. Turn away from your lusts. Turn away from your wickedness. Let the wicked man forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts and turn to Christ. Believe in Jesus. Stake your soul. Stake your life. Stake your hope of eternal life. Stake your hope of redemption and your hope of the forgiveness of sins. Your hope of inclusion in the kingdom of God that is yet to be revealed. Put all of it all of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abandon everything else and put your trust in Jesus. To put it in the words of Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Can I tell you what, beloved? The call to repent and believe was the foundation. They were the foundation stones of Christ's ministry. They were. They were the foundation stones of Christ's ministry. And we need to see three things about these words. I want you to see three things with me about these words. First of all, I want you to notice with me, this is not merely an invitation. It's not. This is not like a, a hey, if you're, if you're not doing anything later, repent and believe. It's not, it's, this is not a, a suggestion. It's not something to be considered or debated. Like, should we take this seriously or not? This is a command to be obeyed. It's a command from Christ. It's an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. Repent and believe. Period. Second, I want you to know that repentance is action-oriented. The word repentance is an action-oriented word. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not just a matter of feeling remorse or feeling sorry that you committed a sin or Maybe more likely, sorry that you got caught committing a sin. It's not about just feeling bad. It's not about just, you know, wishing you hadn't done that. Now, yes, there should be godly grief and sorrow over your sin. 
But repentance at its core is an action word. And it describes a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of direction. You hearing me? It means you do a 180, not a 360. I hear people saying that. That guy did a 360. It means he's going the same way as he was before. It's a 180. Okay? 180. It's a change in direction. And I want you to see something else. Repentance is not a human work that you must accomplish before you can lay hold of salvation. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. It doesn't describe something that we've got to do before we can come to Christ in faith, right? As if it's the first thing you need to check off on your list on your way to Jesus. No. Rather, here's what that word describes. It describes what coming to Christ is like, that it requires you to turn in order to come and believe in Jesus. Let me illustrate that for you. Imagine I call you and I invite you over to my house. Well, let me say I command you to come to my house because that would be more accurate. It's not, gospel's not an invitation. Let's say I call you and I command you to come to my house, right? Now, implicit in that command is what? Leave your house, right? Like, I don't have to say, leave your house and come to my house. All I say is come to my house, right? Right? Because implicit in that command is that you must leave your own, right? You've got to leave your own. You can't come to my house unless you leave your house. Likewise, you can't come to Christ in faith unless you leave your sin and your old life of rebellion. And in fact, they are really faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. Leaving one thing and going to another. And then third, I want you to see this. This command here in the Greek And I wish they had translated it this way, although it probably would have been awkward. This command in the Greek that that Jesus speaks is really repent and keep on repenting. And believe and keep on believing in the gospel. In other words, we're commanded here by Jesus to live in an ongoing manner of repentance and belief toward him. That we're to be there to be the continuous actions of our lives as opposed to being a momentary act that we once did long ago. Right? It's to define our lives. They're to be characteristic. These are to be characteristic, repenting and believing of those who are in Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews says to us these words in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. He says to us, he's saying to believers, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care that your repentance and your believing is ongoing, is what he's saying, right? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, our original faith, our original belief, which is, again, flip side with repentance, firm to the end. In other words, here's our responsibility as the people of God, even once we're saved, is that we keep our hearts soft and sensitive to the Lord. Amen? That we continue to repent and believe is the course of our lives. That's what we do. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, all of us are by nature born in sin and are children of wrath, and we all need to repent, and we need to be converted. We need to be born again if we would see the kingdom of God. All of us are by nature guilty and condemned before God and all must flee to the hope set before us in the gospel and believe it if we're to be saved. All of us, all of us once repentant need daily stirring up to deeper repentance. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I find sometimes that I need to repent of my repentance. You know, like that was lousy repentance. I need to repent of that repentance, right? He says all of us, though believing, need constant exhortation to increased faith. Let us ask ourselves what we know of this repentance and faith. Have we felt our sins and forsaken them truly? Have we laid hold on Christ and believed? We we may reach heaven without learning or riches or health or worldly greatness, but we shall never reach heaven if we die unrepentant and unbelieving. A new heart and a lively faith in a redeemer are absolutely needful to salvation. May we never rest until we know that these things by experience are ours and we call them our own. 
With them, all true Christianity begins in the soul. In the exercise of them consists the life of religion. And it's only through the possession of them, repentance and faith, that men have peace at last. Amen. He's right. There's only one, in, one way into the kingdom, right? There's a divine immigration control, if you will. It's not like our southern border, right, where you just jump the border and, you know, hopefully get apprehended so you can get your goodies and be sent off to await the trial that never comes. Well, at least until a few days ago. God bless Texas. It's not like that. There's only one way. There's only one way into God's kingdom, and it's repent and believe. Repent and keep on repenting and turning from sin and believe and keep on believing in Christ as the sole means of salvation. It's repent and believe, period. Not any variations of that that soften those things. I've heard people say, and no doubt some people are thinking, that's very narrow-minded. That's really narrow-minded. Salvation's in Christ alone. He's the sole means of salvation. Repent and believe in him, period. That's so narrow-minded. That's so exclusivist. I mean, if we really want to reach people, we need to be more open-minded and inclusive. We need to be more understanding and broad. Really? What are we going to change? Who are we to change the message of Jesus? Hey, Jesus, you need a little... You need a little brush up on, you know, public opinion here. Who are we to do that? In fact, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are, and, and those who enter by it are many. Many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beloved, Christ's message, repent and believe, has not changed at all. And and it will not change. Jesus is and ever will be the sole means of salvation. And entrance into the kingdom demands turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Period. Christ's message was simple, wasn't it? To the point. The time is fulfilled. Now is not the time to be messing around. The kingdom of God is at hand in me. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in me. That's so simple, and yet it's so hard. In fact, it's impossible apart from the grace of God, isn't it? Isn't it? Time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Hear and obey your king. I just want to offer some closing thoughts here as we leave this introductory section of the gospel of Mark. You know, there's a lot in this text, I think, that when we really think about it, when we sit and we, we consider it, there's a lot here both to comfort and to challenge us. Right? First, the comfort. What a wonderful comfort it is to know that the long-awaited Messiah has come. Right? What a comfort it is to know that God the Father authenticated him as his beloved son. And so, you know, and he's well pleased by what Christ has done. And, and that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission of redemption, that he was tested, he was tried, and he was proven to be true so that everything he did in our place was actually effectual, right? That when he stood in our place, right, and lived the life of obedience to God's commandments, when he fulfilled all righteousness on our part, that's not make-believe, that's something he actually did, and it counts for us. And when he died on the cross, to pay the penalty of our sins, to fully cover the debt of our transgressions, none of them slipped through Christ's, none of them slipped through Christ's blood-stained fingers. That his resurrection from the dead is not merely some spiritual resurrection by which he comes to live by warm thoughts in the hearts of his people. It's not it at all. That he actually rose on the third day and that he's ascended to the right hand of God. And that he is coming again. And that because he has redeemed us, there is nothing and there is no one that can take us out of his hands. Praise God. If you're a Christian, if you are a believer, if you are, you know, if you are in Christ, Christ has wrought a great salvation that you never could. And you ought to be encouraged and comforted and glad in him. And if you are not in Christ, 
Would you humble yourself? Would you humble yourself before the king of the universe? Would you humble yourself before him and declare that you're not all you think you are, but that in reality you are a wretched sinner, and a rebel against God's law, that you've broken God's commandments, this 10 commandments, 10, 20, 30, 1,000 infinitely times over, and that you need a savior because you can't save yourself. And God doesn't care how much money you have or how little you have. And God doesn't care whether or not, you know, you are well-respected or if everybody thinks you're a loser. God doesn't care how you view yourself or how anyone else views you. He knows the truth about you apart from Christ. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. And the only thing that will keep you on your way to hell is your unrepentant pride. Repent. Turn away from your sin and trust in Christ. Humble yourself. Repent and believe in the Savior that God has sent. Quit playing games. Quit thinking if you resist this call long enough, it's just going to leave you alone and ultimately it's not going to matter. Oh, believe me. On the day of days when Christ returns, this invitation will matter. It'll ring in your ears and you'll be judged for your response. Man, bro, that's heavy. It's the truth. It's the truth. There's only one place of comfort. It's in Christ. It's come to him. And as we look at these three vignettes, I just want to say, talk to you about a few ways in which we're challenged. I'm almost done, but I want you to hear this, Christian. Notice that God declares his everlasting love and his good pleasure in his son, right, at the baptism. And he does that so we might think to ourselves, do I love him like that? Am I delighted in Christ the way that the Father is delighted in his Son? And does my life tell the tale? Does my life tell the tale? Do I live the life of a God lover or not? Do I live the life of a Christ lover or do I not? Second, we see Jesus overcoming temptation in the wilderness, right? A determination to refuse the allure of sin and to resist it. And then in his life to resist it even unto blood. Right? And here we are as the people of God and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. Do we fight temptation? Do we? Do I fight temptation with that same intensity so that God might be glorified in me? So that God might be glorified in you, in us together? Do we? We need to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do we fight temptation? And then last, we hear this call, repent and believe. Repent and keep on repenting. Believe and keep on believing. Is that the direction of our lives? Are we continually turning from our sin in worldliness and consciously putting all of our trust in Christ every moment of every day? Are we really pursuing growth in faith and growth in obedience and growth in holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the writer of Hebrews says? Is that us? Is that me? Is that you? Martin Luther said, and I think he's right, that faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Does that describe you and me? Beloved, when we leave this text, unmistakably we know, Mark has shown us, Jesus Christ is the mighty one of whom John the Baptist spoke. He's the servant king. He's the tried and true. He's the king of the kingdom of God, come to rescue the lost and populate his kingdom with ransomed souls who love and trust in him alone as the sole savior of sinners. And so the only response of our hearts, of any heart that has any sense, right, is what A.W. Pink says. And I'll close with his words. He says, yield yourself to Christ's claims. Give to him the throne of your heart. Turn over to him the regulation of your life. Trust in his atoning death. Love him with all your soul. Obey him with all your might, and he will conduct you to heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, these words 
These are vital words. These are words that we need to hear. These, the, these words, these, these simple words in this introduction to Mark's gospel present with, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the glory and the greatness and the identity of the mighty one who is Christ our Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would take these words that have been preached and you would, you know, that you would take these, these challenges that have been brought forth and that you would just, Lord God, take these words and that you would apply them to everybody's heart specifically in the way in which they need to be applied. I pray, Lord God, that, that you will inflame our hearts to what we have heard and let us consider and respond to these words in the way in which we need to. So help us do that. Help us do that right now. Let us not attempt to dodge the clear teaching of your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.